I really have to thank you actually for recommending Reaper because it is solid a, piece it of is gear. a joy to use. Yeah. I never thought I would buy software again, but they have this lovely use it and if you find it valuable, pay for it. And that just sold me. I because I, I looked at the metrics and it was like, you have opened this four times and used it for a total of 120 hours. And I was like, what the hell? Yeah. I I think I've been using it for three years straight almost on the daily and it's never once crashed. I've never lost a project to it. And man, in the bad old days, I straight up lost some episodes to Audacity and stuff like that. That's brutal. <laughs> and I can imagine it because Audacity has a lot of sharp edges. It reminds me of Electrum Wallet. Yeah. Yeah. It even kind of has that look. They probably use the same, I want to say QT interface. I don't know what QT is. I just, I'm just saying that to sound smart. It is a toolkit. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's like something like WX widgets or something. It has some really old sounding name that they use for Audacity. I don't know about Electrum. As I was telling you, I have Seth for privacy booked next week for an interview, which you could actually join in if you felt like, because we're going to do it via that secret mumble server. Oh, that's why you were setting up a mumble server. That's right. That's cool. Are you going to get him to record his own side and do all that stuff? Yes, because there's a secret file transfer server as well. Ah, nice. Well, no, I'll probably let you guys just do it because in my experience, when you have three people on a remote interview, there's just enough delay between everybody Uh that it's just better one-on-one. Right. I mean, and also you're running a global media empire, so... Yeah, don't have sure. time for all that. But Seth is a really interesting guy because he originally shows up as a pro Monero voice. He's very interested in Monero. And a lot of Bitcoin maximalists will call Monero bad names. A, an altcoin is a nice way to put it. That would probably be the most favorable way to call it. I, I'm always fascinated with Monero, even though I, you know, I'm a true diehard Bitcoiner. Uh, I've always, always been interested in Monero as possibly like a day-to-day spending currency. Me too. So I actually have Seth's packaged Monero into a Docker container. And I have that, I have the container downloaded, but it's not running because I didn't set up the storage correctly. So when I talk to him, I will have a Monero node running and I will have done some Monero stuff. I'd be interested to hear your take on it because I was just thinking the other day, maybe I should run a Monero node because I looked it up. Do you have a guess on how many active Monero nodes that at least can be tracked are on the network right now? At least as we record this in early 2020. I have no idea, but I would guess 2,000. You're just about right on. The numbers I saw were like around 2,700, 2,800. Which would probably make it the most nodes of any project after Bitcoin, I, I imagine. Yeah, I don't know. Because Ethereum is pretty hard to run on a right. node. I wonder, about, I wonder about Litecoin, though. It's just the age. But either way, I felt like, yeah, it's not bad, but I think they could use more nodes. So I feel like maybe spinning spinning up a Monero node myself, but I don't know how much resources it takes. So I'd just be interested when you've done it, run it for a little bit, what your take is, because I love running nodes. Even though I don't get really any benefit from it, the idea that I can take an old machine and I can help decentralize the consensus mechanism is, I'm all about it. That's why I got into this to begin with. I love the uh, networking aspect of it. Yeah, you were a distributed computing guy. And yep. me yep. too. I love running nodes. I run several Bitcoin nodes for various reasons. I've been thinking about running one in the RV. I don't know why, but I just want to. (laughs) Right. Well, what I actually, I wanted to ask you, how can I track node metrics? Because I've tried a lot of different sort of tracking systems. I've installed Prometheus on some servers. I've also run, gosh, what is that one that Jim Salter loves? It's kind of old school. Hmm. Boy, there's a lot. It's not Zabbix. It's... Somebody's listening right now, probably shouting at the 
You I think have, I know what you're talking about. You have about, to install though. a plugin. It's like Nagios. Only Nagios. Oh, it is Nagios. Oh, yeah. I thought it was one of the Nagios uh, alternatives. For, for our non nerdy listeners, sorry, we just began talking. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, episode 11, Friday, April 22nd, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Should I sit down now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're discussing some technical aspects of node running. And so Nagios is a network monitoring tool. Yeah. But would you recommend something like that for monitoring a node? I see. So I was wondering what kind of monitor are you talking are you talking just uptime or are you talking more like load, disk usage, that kind of stuff? Network usage, disk usage, like IO, maybe compute and RAM and memory too. Now remind me what kind of what kind of hardware we're dealing with here in terms of like how much free RAM and disk what type of disk is in it? I was going to run it on my Proxmox box. It's a big R seven twenty server with two hundred and fifty six gigs of RAM. Okay. But I was gonna allocate it my standard four threads CP X eighty six CPU with eight gigs of RAM and you know, stick a virtual hard disk on there. All right, well giddy up. I was just making sure it wasn't like a Raspberry Pi. Because I think what I would recommend for you then is something a little more robust. So if you're on a if you're on a Raspberry Pi or a lower end system, I would just straight up recommend Uptime Kuma. It's a great tool to just measure certain aspects about websites, up system uptime, alert you, it'll graph its availability, and it's available as an app on Umbral if you're running an Umbral node. And that's just called Uptime Kuma K U M A. But for you, my friend, um, you know, I would probably consider something more robust. And you know, I got mixed feelings on net data, but net data is going to blow your mind in terms of the information and graphs and visuals it will generate about the state of your system. And is that open source software? Hmm. It's free. I don't know if it is open source or not. So here I'm I'm showing you as I'm doing this. This is one of our next cloud servers here for the JB network. And you don't see a lot on this system because there's just not a lot going on, but you can get good historical information. It has insights into the individual containers you're running. It can do alert generation on RAM usage or strange network activity. Uh, you can also bring multiple systems together through their net data cloud stuff. But and this... so you install net data on, on the box. The box mm -hmm. and it just sucks in all the data or you have yeah. to add more plugins or no it'll basically look at your linux box and it'll say okay i recognize this kernel i recognize this space system i know it's capable of providing me these metrics and you'd be shocked there's so much information that you're not getting exposed through linux that linux actually knows about your system and so it talks to the kernel api it talks to the network apis it's actually a pretty good citizen it'll even tell you how much load it's adding to your system so you can get an idea and, of course, you could turn the service on and off. It's one of those where you could do the one-line install if you're comfortable trying it, you know, send some URL to a shell script. Obviously, I'd have to install it on the host. I couldn't put it yeah. in a Docker container because then it wouldn't be able to necessarily access the host sockets. Yeah. It would, I, it would I, need root access I anyway. Actually, I do think there is a way to run it as a Docker container. I think it's super limited. Right. It's This is essentially the one application at JB that we install on the host. And we use NetData Cloud, which is a different installation process, but it centralizes all the information. But you don't need to do that. Sounds like NetData should be a sponsor of yeah. JB. You know what? They should be. Gosh darn it. But it's a great way to look at what a box is doing. And uh, I like I when I first set up my Umbral node, I also put NetData on there. And it was fun watching the system chew away at syncing the blockchain, you know, and that's how I knew it was done is when I watched all of the metrics drop down on my net data dashboard. Yeah, because I'm at the stage where I haven't really gotten a go to monitoring solution. So that's a, that's really good. 
And it'll generate alerts for you. But what I was saying about Seth is that he's a sort of a Monero guy because Monero is a privacy-first blockchain. At the same time, I think Seth's really cool because a lot of people who are pro-Monero will not really discuss the drawbacks. And the drawbacks are Monero currently does less than 1% of the transaction volume of the Bitcoin blockchain. And so it, it does not have the ability to scale 100 times to achieve the however many million users of Bitcoin. And it certainly could never scale to achieve global world-based money. So in a way, it's useful now as a privacy currency, but I think it's sort of limited long-term because it doesn't have the ability to become this huge network that everyone can use. I've, I've also wondered, although I really don't know, and perhaps Monero accounts for this technologically, but I've wondered and worried that if the user base is so small and the places that accept Monero are so small, that if I were to move anything, you know, of, of any large amount, probably $10,000 or more, it would seem like that would be actually fairly discoverable just because of the small user base to begin with. Yes, it's private, but because there are so few people actually moving large amounts of money around, does that not actually add some kind of possible exposure? I'll discuss that with Seth and see what he thinks. I'd love to know what he thinks, yeah. But he's also interested in having the Bitcoin privacy discussion. When you were gone, I, I read a, an article by Pete Rizzo about the different types of Bitcoin maximalists. And Rizzo's point is that monetary maximalists, people who really get the economic argument for Bitcoin, are the loudest voice. And it's sort of a complacent philosophy because in the, in the monetary maximalist view, Bitcoin is already perfect money. So what do we need to do to improve it? Right. It's uh, In fact, they'd argue one of its benefits is that it doesn't change. That's one of the things that makes it such great money. I think it doesn't change much in contrast to Ethereum or these other altcoin chains that are just you know, changing so rapidly and so crazily that it's hard to keep track of them. Bitcoin has changed a lot. One reason that we have one sat per byte transactions again after 2017 when we thought we'd never see the mempool clear. Should we explain those terms? Sure. So, no, don't, don't, po don't point to me to explain it. You're on a roll. <laughs> well, I'm learning from you right now. Bitcoin guarantees block propagation. So when you make a payment and it gets mined into a Bitcoin block, the Bitcoin protocol guarantees that that block will propagate to the rest of the network. And it's very likely that that will be the next block. There are certain situations where two miners mine one block at the same time, and then they're now in a race and the person who can mine another block and build on top of that first block, now that becomes the real chain because it's the longest chain. So there are circumstances where one confirmation of a Bitcoin transaction is probably not safe. If, say, you're sending $100,000, I would wait for six confirmations yeah. just because. Just yeah, generally one is almost good to go. And you'll even see some point of sales areas, especially early on, they would just consider one confirmation good enough. You know, they'd risk it. And that's how they kept the transaction speed up. Actually, that brings up a boost that oh, I saw. Oh, really? Yes. A content-relevant boost, you say? Yeah. So this boost is from True Grits. Sorry, True Grits. You're going at the, or kudos, you're going at the beginning of the article, uh, article episode. The pod. I think, you're I going, think the official name, name is pod, right? Right. Because I'm thinking of how you said you didn't like podcasts initially because you were shows. Yeah. You were a show. We were a show. Yeah. An internet show. But now it's a pod. Okay. Well, applications have become, become apps. Everything's getting shorter. So so shows became shh. <laughs> That's why we had to change it to pod. Okay. True Grits writes in, just starting this podcast from episode one. Aren't we starting to see a transition back to where people are using Bitcoin as cash again? 
especially with the implementation of the Lightning Network. If we find ourselves in a similar situation as Russia in the future, wouldn't we then be able to use it as currency again? Sorry, I butchered that sentence. Isn't that the, the point? What occurred to me here is TrueGrits is referring to this era you described in the beginning when you could basically use Bitcoin as cash because you could do a zero-conf transaction. It would always clear. Sometimes there was zero-fee transactions too. And not only that, but there were even sometimes incentives like a discount if you paid in Bitcoin and things like Expedia or even my pet shop was taking Bitcoin for a bit. A sandwich shop, a, a coffee shop was taking Bitcoin. For a brief period of time, we had w wider adoption than we do now. Right. Because if you have zero adoption of a blockchain-based cryptocurrency, then you can have almost free transactions because the block subsidy, the new Bitcoins being entered into the world, these pay the miners enough so that they don't really care about transaction fees. And as long as the mempool clears, you can you know, mine every transaction, doesn't matter what, what fee they pay. Yeah, very much so. So what is the mempool? In every node, there is a, a setting in the bitcoin.conf file that says either mempool or memcache. And the default value, I believe, is 300 megabytes. And this is a cache in RAM that stores Bitcoin transactions that have yet to be mined. And so when we talk about the Bitcoin mempool, we're describing like an idealized combination of all mempools on the system. Because at the end of the day, what gets into blocks will come out of miners' mempools, but we'll, what will get into miners' mempools comes out of all of our mempools because transactions travel mempool to mempool. When I have some new transactions and my node connects to Chris's node, it'll say, hey, do you have these transactions? Chris's node says no, and then I send those transactions to him automatically. So this transactions propagate from mempool to mempool. And so in the early days when there was zero adoption, essentially, you could, quote unquote, misuse the Bitcoin blockchain to do payments. But now that there is adoption, you need to attach fees to transactions. There's, there's limited block space, and we need to allocate that block space with a fee market, which means now it can get expensive to use the base chain. And this really took off in 2017, which was, I think was the, was that the end of the block size war? Yeah, yeah, that probably sounds right. I don't remember exactly. That sounds right. And what was really interesting about this time was the Bitcoin network was totally jammed up. The mempool wouldn't clear. And this was part of the marketing for Bitcoin Cash, which was, hey, look, we've got a massive mempool, massive blocks, you know, cheap transactions. Come over to Bitcoin Cash. Well, it turned out that Jihan Wu of Bitmain was actually spamming the Bitcoin network because they were a big miner back then. So they were sending themselves a bunch of transactions to fill up blocks. And sometimes they would lose those transaction fees because another miner would win the block, but sometimes they'd win them back. And he felt that if he could clog up the Bitcoin network, he could convince people to move to Bitcoin Cash. And Jihan had went like all in on Bitcoin Cash. Remember, there was a time when the ant miner S9 could only be purchased for Bitcoin Cash. God. Someone told me that and I didn't believe it. I had to look on the website and I was like, this has to be a typo. What's going on here? Wow. I didn't I didn't realize that dirty Bit play. Bitcoin Cash was this whole Bitmain miner miners control Bitcoin play. Yeah, that makes sense in retrospect. But the spamming of the blockchain is just a dirty play and expensive. And in the end, Jihan paid for it. I mean, that guy spent billions in Bitcoin. I mean, today it's worth billions. Back then it was probably worth a lot of money, but not billions on playing dirty tricks. And in the end, he was financially punished. He didn't get to do his Bitmain ICO. Obviously, that doesn't ha have anything to do with the Bitcoin network, but Jihan played dirty and he got mud on his face. And I mean, who cares about Jihan today? Nobody. 
Right. This is probably the most coverage he's gotten in a while. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Jihan, if you're out there, you can come in. Uh, come on to the pod. Uh, no need to do it in English. You know, you can speak your native tongue and get really into the details. We'll get a translator. That's great. Right. Well, you can translate, Chris. Okay. Yeah, I'll study up real quick. Now, what True Grits is getting at is with Lightning, we can do Bitcoin payments again, but we're doing it the right way. We're doing it using a scalable protocol. And there are businesses today like BitRefill that will accept a zero conf transaction on the Bitcoin main chain, but they have a, a protocol around that. You have to send a high fee. It can't be too much money. It can't be an RBF replaced by fee transaction, which could then be redirected somewhere else. You know, it's interesting because basically in the beginning, a lot of people thought Bitcoin was Visa. And now it turns out that maybe it wasn't Visa, it was digital gold. But Lightning is kind of like Visa, except better. I think the problem is that Bitcoin is not exactly analogous to anything we've had before. And so we as humans keep trying to do pattern matching. Those patterns stick for a while, but then as the world moves on and the macro picture changes and digital just becomes a, a bigger and bigger part of our lives. And, you know, you have people like my kids who sit on pet simulator all day and trade pets on a on some sort of like pet exchange market, copying, you know, digital pets around, which basically just sound like NFTs to me. And to them, digital first is preferable, right? So like all of these things, all of these things keep changing on the macro. And as they do, as they evolve, what Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin does, who Bitcoin is for changes with it because it is unlike any other asset. It is unlike any other property out there before. And so it is digital gold, but it is also Visa and MasterCard because it's not just the asset, it's the Bitcoin network too. And that is part of the magic, right? It's an asset with its own communications protocol. And when you think about it and you think about how email changed mail, you know, you could see how Bitcoin changes finances. When you take something like an asset and you give it its own communications network, it fundamentally changes the game. And that's why it's not quite like anything else before. And I love it. I love watching the new use cases. I have also begun changing the way I think about it a little bit with my kids too. I, I've mentioned it before, but the Lightning wallet is like a checking account. I honestly, what I do is I don't even take the Lightning out of my main stash. I just buy some lightning with the strike. I just buy some with the strike app. I send it to my main lightning wallet, or sometimes I just keep it on strike. And that's my spending money. That's my going to town sats. And I, I love boosting. It's one of my favorite things to do when listening to podcasts now. It's so much fun. And I love being able to send, you know, a few sats to my kids when they do a chore. I think that's just a ton of fun. And the moment like a local burger shop or something in my town or the brewery accepts lightning payments, yeah, I'm going to buy some stinky fiat and I'm going to convert it to lightning immediately. And then I'm going to keep it on there and I'm going to do lightning payments. I prefer it. I think it's a better system. And of course, I know the technology behind it's better than the MasterCard or the Visa card network. And it's really fun to pay for things on your phone, which is something that I think many Americans have never done before. I don't know if you could tell from before, but I have spent some time in China. And China did something interesting where they went from a cash economy, which where you did business with bundles of these red bills with Chairman Mao's face on them, to a digital money economy, like overnight. Like overnight, cash disappeared. And you cannot pay with cash in most places in China now. You pay using these fintech apps, Alipay and WeChat. And unfortunately, it's a surveillance nightmare panopticon. However, it's also pretty interesting because basically the Chinese government did not realize that Alipay was its own central bank. Oh, what does that mean? Well, there's over the past couple of years since the pandemic, essentially, 
there have been these very serious sanctions of Chinese tech companies in, uh, by the Communist Party in China. And so today, if you look at Alibaba, Tencent, Alipay, all of these companies, they're trading like 70% down from where they were before the pandemic, not because their business is bad, but because the government is like taking these companies over. And for example, they stopped allowing new online games to be issued in China for two years, which is sort of the biggest growth market in Chinese tech companies. So that was odd. But I think a lot of things happened. But one thing is that the Chinese government realized that people never withdraw money from their Alipay account. They just trade it to other people with Alipay. So in your Alipay account, it's basically an app on your phone. And it says, here's Bitcoin dad's Alipay account. And he's got 1,000 yuan in it, 1,000 Chinese renminbi. And then I can pay and receive using a QR code scanner on my phone. So it's super seamless, super fast. But I never actually, because it's accepted everywhere, I never actually withdrew the physical cash. And so what does that mean? It means that Alipay can print money because people never take it out of their app. They, they don't need real money to back it up if you never ask for real money to come out of the app to go to your bank account. So this made the central bank freak out, essentially, and they have sanctioned Alipay and kind of taken it over since then. Oh, wow. And um, you got to figure it took them a hot minute. To, and then when they when they realized what was going on, there was probably a little bit of a panic. <laughs> China's an authoritarian yeah, state. Yeah. I mean, you could say totalitarian right now. They like to really have a closed system there. Not realizing that you were losing control of the money supply, like probably really gave people cold sweat in government. Yeah, all of a sudden, Alipay's just got their own closed system of their own. It obviously worked well with the Chinese surveillance state because they conduct a huge amount of surveillance on their users, on their spending habits. And actually, this data is part of the Chinese social credit system, which is a very dark project, which basically rates people based on how they spend their money into good and bad categories. And if you're in a bad category, you literally cannot, your rights as a citizen are reduced. You're not allowed to travel between cities. You can't buy a plane ticket. You can't buy a train ticket. You're, you're sort of limited. And this is actually a stated policy that their glorious leader has talked about. He wants the righteous to be able to move freely within China and, that, and those who are less good to be constrained by invisible chains, not even to take a simple step. And this is, a, in my view, a terrifying reality. And this is kind of why I'm so concerned about central bank digital currencies, because a system like this, it's, it's possible to imagine a situation where someone doesn't have a good enough social credit score to buy food and they starve in the middle of the street, in the midst of plenty, because they're forbidden from interacting with other... Yeah. Or even something I could see happening even sooner than that would be they're just denied travel outside the country where maybe they could go find something better and have more opportunity. And that's pretty tragic as well. And I think that's also why I'm very happy to see more and more movement towards using Lightning as the payment system. I think the integration with Shopify is going to be significant over time. Strike's announcement of their partnership with NCR, I think, is also going to pay dividends over time and Blackhawk because the Lightning Network does bring some level of privacy to Bitcoin. The, you know, there are also Bitcoin improvement proposals to implement better privacy inside Bitcoin. But this is where the argument for Monero comes up, because with Bitcoin, we do run the risk of essentially creating a voluntary transaction system that could be analyzed by commercial companies that could create spending profiles on individuals fairly easily and then sell them as part of a data broker market and, in a way, create a social credit score that's just essentially privatized by monitoring the blockchain. And that's why I feel like systems like Lightning that help improve privacy and other technologies you know, are going to be pretty critical developments for Bitcoin. I agree. 
I think that a big issue that Bitcoin network maximalists and platform maximalists are a bit more focused on than the monetary maximalists is that Bitcoin at the base layer is in many situations non-fungible, meaning different Bitcoin UTXOs, different little bits of Bitcoin, have different histories, and therefore they're different. It's not like I'm waving a handful of dollar bills at you and they're all the same. Every Bitcoin UTXO, if it has a different history, you could apply a different value to it. You could say that this UTXO is less valuable because I think it went through a drug market, or this UTXO touched a Russian wallet, or this UTXO right. touched an Israeli wallet. And so this is this can't be spent in, you know, name name your country or something. I also, although don't think it'll be a problem you and I are around for, but I also think once you get towards the end of Bitcoin's production mining, doesn't it seem possible that certain Bitcoins could also be the reverse of what you just said? Some very early Bitcoin perhaps becomes more valuable than the very last Bitcoin mined or you know, some Bitcoin that's tied back to Silk Road. You know, we're talking 100 years from now, right? So it's sort of like classic OG oh, Bitcoin. OG Bitcoin. So it's worth a little bit more. Like a Bitcoin NFT. Like I could buy, imagine if someone wanted to sell you an original 50 Bitcoin block reward. Right. I've heard that on the OTC market, people pay extra for block rewards because really? they're pure. See, this is where I wonder, this is also, I don't necessarily think a good thing because you could see like Elon's Bitcoin maybe sells for more than your Bitcoin does. I, yeah. and I don't like that. Oh, this is a problem. And I think this is probably one of the best attacks on Bitcoin. Janet Yetlin, please turn off the podcast now. Stop listening. Funny story. She, I never thought I'd hear Janet Yellen say, Satoshi's contribution was real. I, 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 you're talking about a piece of video where Janet Yellen was up on stage praising the innovation of Bitcoin. What, what? Talk about a turn on the, on the, on a dime. Like they are clearly, the, the Biden administration has consensus that digital assets are, are happening because I, some of the most positive words spoken about Bitcoin by a government official ever just came out of the mouth of Janet Yellen. And I mean, a year ago she was conspiring with Senator Warren to try to torpedo Bitcoin. And I mean, maybe we should jump into the IMS Global Financial Stability Report, which I think they should rename the IMS Global Crypto Report. Because if you look at the report, and I actually linked to the Bitcoin Magazine article because it's sort of a summary, but there's a link to the report in there if you want to read the whole thing. The report is about 80 pages long, and one third is devoted to fintech, but it's really all basically Bitcoin and Tether. But the, you actually see the first chart of Tether in the first section. So this thing has just got Bitcoin and crypto assets all over it. And I, I sense that they are getting very worried that the cat is out of the bag. And basically, permissionless financial systems obviate the IMF. You don't need the IMF when you can choose which digital economy you, you want to participate in. And I recall from their last year's report, they are very concerned about self-custodying crypto assets because if citizens can self-custody their crypto assets, it might be difficult to apply monetary policy to them. They're also very concerned about countries that they're specifically targeting with monetary policies as a bit of a weapon. They're concerned that those countries tend to be energy rich. Huh. Funny how that works. And that they could use their surplus energy to mine Bitcoin. Which ties into the news that BitRiver was actually the first Bitcoin miner to be sanctioned by the right. U.S. government. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was uh, that was in relation to the war with Ukraine and just not doing business with Russia, right? It was, 
targeting them because I guess they have operations over there? My understanding is that BitRiver is a Russian company, but they recently changed their structure. So they have a Swiss holding company now. And BitRiver has several mining facilities. I think they're their best known one is in Siberia, which is a hydropower facility. Okay. And the juicy part of this story is that Compass Mining, the company that basically lets you, quote unquote, mine using your own ASIC hosted in Compass's facility, and you can just, you know, do it all online, click, you know, you never even have to take possession of the ASIC. You can send it directly to Compass. They leased a facility from BitRiver. And when BitRiver got sanctioned, they basically said to their customers, hey, so we can't actually send you the sats from those miners anymore because of sanctions. So what we'll do is we'll sell the miner to BitRiver for peanuts, and then we'll give you some of those peanuts. Because we can't even get them out of Russia, because that would be like doing business with Russia. Which then begs the question, well, if you're selling the miner to BitRiver, isn't that also doing business for Russia? So maybe the only thing you should do here is give the miner to BitRiver, and then BitRiver can mine more Satoshis and strengthen the Russian regime and the American people who didn't really think through the implications of having your mining hardware custodied by a company that then trusted it to a Russian hosting facility, well, you you get to eat that loss, I guess. Yeah, I guess they must have been looking for cheap power, right? That's got to be part of what makes the margins work for Compass is cheap power. Compass actually doesn't care about the power costs because they make money on the hosting fees. So as long as you're willing to pay the hosting fee, mm. they will make their cut. So they rolled the power cost into that hosting fee, probably. You know, the IMF, just go, jumping back to this too, because this is all one big story, really. They know that nations need to switch to central bank digital currencies quick and that doing so may stagnate the growth of Bitcoin. And just to be so... So blatant about we need to move quick to capture people, essentially, and keep them in the system because there is an alternative payment network coming online and it's superior and it's cross-border and it it's money for enemies and friends. We got to get these people in this system. And I don't mean to be so extreme about it. And we have links in the notes, but when you read through this, you clearly read essentially an old guard that is nervous that their time to trap people inside of a monetary system is running out. And they essentially are pushing every country in the West to develop and deploy central bank digital currencies as fast as possible. And I, I am actually honestly shocked that the private banking industry in the United States isn't pushing back against this harder because a central bank digital currency puts them out of business somehow. I mean, likely it could. And I'm just it seems like nobody's pushing back. Nobody is arguing against the CBDC at any real scale that has any real loud voice. And the IMF says it's the solution for these uh, countries keeping control over their economy. To quote the report, policymakers need a multifaceted policy strategy to preserve the effectiveness of capital flow management measures in an environment of increasing use of crypto assets. So what they're talking about when they say capital flow management, they mean money entering and leaving an economy. And another term for this is capital controls. So I've heard it said that money is like water. It flows to where it's treated the best. And right now in the United States and Europe, if you have a bunch of money, you probably have to own some bonds as part of your portfolio. And you're getting killed on those bonds because these two economies are the uh, United States and the European Union are enacting financial repression to a certain degree. Essentially, these two governments have so much government spending that they need to constantly issue more debt 
to pay for this government spending. The tax receipts of the country are not sufficient. So they need to actually suppress the interest rate on their debt payments by colluding with the central bank to essentially the central bank issues more currency units and uses them to buy government debt. This is called debt monetization. It's how hyperinflation start. It's happening. It's real. You, if you think that it doesn't make sense that inflation is, you know, at least 8%, yet the interest rate on government bonds is maybe 3%, maybe less. I think 3% is high, and that's the U.S. Well, it's because this is actually a, pol- a policy, and it enables the status quo. It enables the government to keep spending, no tightening, no need for uh, angry elections where people are upset about their services getting cut. Right, because the core of what you're saying is this policy that they have implemented that we are living through right now, it keeps the cost of their debt payments down, which allows them to continue to borrow money so they can continue to spend more than their tax revenue would otherwise allow for. And so you need capital controls because if you're letting inflation run hot, but pools of money can't make real returns because interest rates are, are, are actually below inflation, they're negative real interest rates, then this money will flow to some place where it can earn a real return. And you might say, oh, that's greedy. Well, we're all greedy. I, I think we can agree on that. So you need capital controls. You need to basically shut the exit door and prevent this money from flowing out. And uh, here's another choice quote from the IMF report. To fend off cryptoization risks, strengthening macroeconomic policies is necessary, but may not be sufficient given the unique challenges posed by the crypto ecosystem. I interpret this as because people, and I guess institutions too, have the option to basically put their money in Bitcoin if they don't like how it's being treated in dollars or euros, we might actually need to have better policies that treat mo- treats money and treats people better. That's what you've always said, is the only real risk to Bitcoin is good policy. And wouldn't it be something, is, is if instead of getting early Bitcoiners rich, what early Bitcoiners really did was build a reasonable threat to the international monetary system so that they had to become more competitive and respond. Because there was a line in there you said about the dangers of the crypto networks. Essentially, the, the danger is that they are superior in speed, they are superior in security, they are superior in the reach. They are superior forms of monetary networks, and that's truly the threat that it provides. And what they're saying is, is we have to become more competitive to compete with that. But the ironic thing is, is they can never do it. They have backed themselves into a corner, and there's no going back now. Here's another beautiful tidbit. The international community should work to prevent further fragmentation of the global payment system. Because essentially, if the TradFi traditional finance payment system gets more fragmented by sanctions, then it's less useful and it becomes more reasonable to move to, to crypto rails because they don't have the same arbitrary limitations. However, this kind of lets you know that things aren't going to work out the way the IMF wants because the U.S. is going to keep sanctioning and the traditional system is going to get more and more fragmented because two paragraphs earlier, they suggested capital controls. What do capital controls do? They fragment the global financial system. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. You're absolutely right. That is funny. They both acknowledge that capital controls are making their network less useful and less competitive while also calling for capital controls. That is such a great observation. And I find this whole thing so funny that they've finally figured out that it kind of sounds like they've realized that one of the real threats of cryptocurrency isn't the actual asset, but it's the payment network. That really sounds like what they've identified here. 
Completely, because the monetary authorities or financial regulators in the traditional financial system, they have a couple of choke points. So they get banks to screen all of their customers. And if there's a customer name that's on a, a list, then they stop the transaction or at the very minimum, they report it to the authority. And so there are a lot of places to block transactions or to monitor transactions. Now, on a public blockchain, you can also monitor all the transactions unless they're using specific privacy protocols or it's a privacy chain like Monero. But there's no way to stop a transaction unless you are controlling all the miners on the network. So for traditional regulators and technocrats who are used to kind of running the system or thinking they do, this is terrifying because these are systems that are literally beyond the control of any one institution. They're systems that very likely have been designed from lessons learned by letting these people that are in control have all this power, right? That fundamentally, it seems one of the things that motivated Satoshi Nakamoto was just inflation, the state of the worldwide economy, the bailouts of 2008. These things were motivators for Satoshi. And so in a way, these things have been built to replace these other networks. And not only do you have the capital controls and all, all of those things and the fragmentation now because of sanctions, but you also just have the inherent fragility of this network. And I spent seven years working at a bank behind the scenes in the data center, and I have seen how all of this is interconnected. And they are using the same technology they were using at the turn of the century <laughs> to do this stuff. Like they've just scaled it up. They have just they have just taken old systems from like the 18 and early 1900s and they have just scaled it and scaled it. It is a fragile, brittle, manual system. Meanwhile, cryptocurrency networks run 24-7 and they run themselves. We should get through our yes. cryptocurrency yes. news before we get to the other stuff. Okay. Turkey recently issued a ban on using cryptocurrency for transactions. This is not something that is too surprising because Turkey has had really bad economic policy for several years because the president slash, is he a dictator yet? Erdogan? Erdogan, yeah. Erdogan, sorry. Yeah, I think sorry, so. Erdogan. Yeah, don't hurt his feelings. Feel free to come on and dispute my characterizations of your unelected regime. Yeah, um, maybe preferably sent in as a boost. So if we get any boosts in Turkish with a lot of angry face emojis, we'll know it was from you. Erdogan doesn't seem to understand basic commonly accepted truths of economics. And I know I bash economics all the time. At the same time, pretty much everyone agrees that if you have persistent high inflation, you probably need to raise the central bank's prime interest rate because keeping that low tends to encourage expansionary lending by banks and this tends to create more money, which creates more inflation. Yeah, it's easy, loose access to money. But Erdogan is convinced that high interest rates cause inflation. That's what he's stated many times for many years, which is you know something that has just never been demonstrated. And no, if anything, high interest rates generally lead to recession. Which tends to reduce inflation. Yes. Erdogan has gone through, I would say, conservatively six central bank governors, including his son-in-law at some point. And he fired his son-in-law, too. So this is a man committed to making a mistake and doubling down every time. Well, you know, today, as we record, his government is celebrating the fact that inflation is officially down to 55.5% as of today, which is their official number. And they are happy that they're getting it down to that. What a joke. My God. That's a failed currency right there. Yeah. Turkey has, for a long time, used a lot of dollars and euros in their economy. 
I don't say this with any authority, just speaking with Turkish friends of mine. And people are essentially allowed to save in foreign currency, but you're not allowed to transact in it. So they are trying to kind of create demand for their crappy local currency, which is called the lira, by requiring that you use it for domestic transactions. So you kind of need to have some of it, essentially. You can't, like, sell it all very conveniently. Sounds like a shitcoin token or something. Oh, well, I thought we were going to keep this family friendly. <laughs> oh, okay. Aren't, isn't that their official name? <laughs> well, that is in the congressional register, but <laughs> we, don't, we don't want... I mean, frankly, I don't think politicians should be role models for our children. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Oof, isn't that sad? <laughs> but they're just applying the same standards for other foreign currencies to Bitcoin and reiterating that. Sure. At the same time, if you look at the price of the lira in Bitcoin, it's basically just going, it's like a 45 degree line trending towards zero. It doesn't look like the lira is a very stable currency. And if you went into Bitcoin when things looked bad in Turkey a year ago, you're probably feeling yeah. very clever right now. Really? Yeah, no kidding. Congratulations to you. We are watching the beginning of the weakest currencies fall apart. That's the phase we're in right now. Like you say all the time, the U.S. dollar is the cleanest, dirtiest shirt. The and, best house on a bad street. Yep. And the bad houses are falling right now. They're beginning. Turkey is one that I think, because it's in our Western circle, we talk about this one more. But this is not a problem unique to just Turkey. And it's a problem that seems like it's going to expand. For sure. And we also have some news from Israel. Israel is a famous U.S. ally. It's a country that receives a lot of support from the United States. But it recently reduced the share of dollars in their government, the, the Bank of Israel's reserve mix. And euros. They're pulling back from dollars and euros in their reserve mix. I don't understand why anyone would hold euros. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that the EU is so hostile to Bitcoin is that the euro is kind of the glue that holds the EU together, and it's just a dumpster fire of a currency. Yeah. Because it's not an international currency. It's a local currency. So I don't understand why. They're doing a 10% drop in their allocation, which is their lowest in a decade. They're going from over 30% of their reserves to now less than 20% of their reserves. Wait, 30% of you? Oh, I see. 30% yeah. to 20%. So they've reduced their euro allocation by a third. You know, when we're, when we're talking crypto numbers, like that's not a big number. But when you're talking traditional reserve banking... This is being called a, quote, dramatic reduction. And if you look at what they added, they also reduced the share of U.S. dollar. But the U.S. dollar went from 66% of their reserves in 2021 to 61%, so a 5% reduction. Still the lowest uh, in the reserves since 1995. But what they've added is some interesting currencies. They've added the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, and the Chinese renminbi. And you have a theory that like they're, they're kind of picking specific assets because of how these assets are used. Well, let's think about it. The Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar. Has anyone ever heard of these currencies? No. Has anyone ever used them? No, unless you live in those countries. So why would you put them <laughs> in your foreign, yeah, your, yeah. your Especially central bank? Why would Israel, right? Tell me, does Israel have a lot of natural resources? No, I'd imagine they do a lot of trade. Ah, and it turns out that Canada and Australia are essentially rentier states that produce a lot of natural resources for trade. So holding reserves in those currencies might be a sign of kind of keeping your ability to import natural resources on the table. 
Yeah, like these are perhaps places you're going to do business with. Yeah, that would make sense. For sure. And I'm sure that's why the renminbi is in there too, because mm. everyone, Israel is a tech hub, so they probably sell a lot of technology and import consumer goods from China. Who doesn't? Yeah. And this plays into Zoltan Poznar's narrative. He was the Credit Suisse analyst who released a piece on Bretton Woods 3 that I think I linked to in a previous episode. Yeah, we talked about it. And this makes sense. Bretton Woods 3 is this idea that the new global monetary order will be based on energy and commodities. Because who cares about these inflating currencies? What matters is real stuff, real things you can buy, real things you can use. And so the currencies of resource-producing countries are sort of a proxy for holding timber and oil and metal and all these useful. Right. And what's kind of surprising, almost shocking, when you read through uh, this report is Israel's central bank just basically gives it one of these, look, we got to do what's best for us. Like, we got to have stuff that's going to cover the cost, and this is just in our best interest. They don't say it, and they say it in very much banker terms, but that's essentially what they're saying. And it's just shocking, since Israel is supposedly such a close ally of the United States, that they're, you know, one of the first big Western countries making this move to start reducing their holding of the U.S. dollar and the euro, and 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 to actually just come out and say, yeah, look, we got to do what's best for us. Sorry. I think we're in a new era. I think that the age of the dollar is clearly waning, which is no surprise. It was unstable for a long time. I think the 2008 financial crisis was sort of a wake-up call to most countries in the world that they couldn't rely on the U.S. financial system the way they thought they could. And now we're in a transition to a new monetary standard. Who knows what it's going to look like? We obviously think that Bitcoin is probably going to be a big part of this eventually. In the meantime, it looks like a lot of institutions are falling back on things that were tried in the 19th century, such as gold. For instance, I heard today that the Bank of Russia actually has an open bid. The Central Bank of Russia has an open bid on gold. So if you're a market that transacts with them, they will always buy gold at this price. It's like 5,000 rubles a gram or something. And so what does that sound like? That sounds like a gold standard to me. Yeah. You know, it also always helps, you know, it always helps the price is a buyer, somebody who's always willing to buy. You always see that affect the price too. You, you got to figure gold's probably going to do well in the yeah. near term. We call that a price floor. Yeah. And Bitcoin is still just a little too early. I think these governments are still just a little too out of touch. They're just a little bit too of the old guard. Hey, and it's weird. It's freaky. How can data be scarce? Can I just control C and paste that? You know, you mentioned too, like the thought too is commodities, energy. And I wonder if proof of works interaction with the energy market might not be quintessential in how Bitcoin's role evolves in the future for this new, whatever this new monetary system that comes up. Perhaps Bitcoin's energy usage actually plays a role. I don't know what yet, but I could see it. Oh, so essentially, if you're a country with a lot of energy, suddenly you can directly monetize it without having to deal with global commodity markets by just saying, I'm going to turn some of this energy into hashes to hash for Bitcoin blocks. Yeah. And I could even see them selling that hash rate. You know, uh, you could see a market for that for from energy rich countries and the countries run it directly. Then some of the Bitcoin mine goes into their own reserves and things like that. There's already mechanisms to buy and sell hash rate because you can buy a block stream mining note on the liquid side chain. And this mining note is essentially a share of block stream hash from one of their facilities. And on maturity, the mining note pays out Bitcoin, the Bitcoin it mined. Hmm. And it's yeah. non-KYC. 
Or well, do you have to KYC to get the note? Yeah, so uh, it's complicated. If you look in the details of the way that Blockstream Finance registers things, I mean, they've got registrations in Kazakhstan. I mean, let's be honest, it seems shady as heck. At the same time, I don't think that the U.S. would allow them to do this kind of thing. So they, like water, they flow to where they're treated best. But the Blockstream mining note, you initially had to be, I think, an accredited investor to buy it. But here's the kicker. Once you buy it, it's in your Blockstream liquid wallet, your Blockstream green wallet. You can now trade it to anyone else with a Blockstream green wallet. I think there's a secondary market where any of us could go and buy one of those things from an accredited investor. The yeah, question wow, is, wow. how does it work on redemption? Like, do they just automatically like send the Bitcoin to your liquid address or do you have to like trade it in? So, right, so yeah. I wonder if you have to be an accredited investor to receive the payout or if I bought it, I'd have to sell it to an accredited investor at the last minute and they might, you know, not give me the full price or something. Right, take a cut. But you could see this is the proto-framework for something that is happening at the global stage, especially if nations and large enterprises get in on it. You know, if you Exxon, who is actually, is it was it Exxon or Chevron who's actually experimenting with a little Bitcoin mining right now? You could see how they could get in on that. Yeah, I mean, I've said for years, I think that the Blockstream liquid sidechain could eat global securities markets completely, just by itself. Maybe with a little bit of more scaling, like you can build lightning on it and stuff. That is a beast of a sidechain. It does some cool stuff. And nobody knows about it because Blockstream, they build cool tech, but they don't have a marketing budget. Maybe we should do an episode on it sometime. I know. Gosh, if we could get Andrew Palestra on here. Wow. He's a cool guy. That'd be great. He also has great hair. You'd get Dream along big. with him. Dream big. Oh, then we should do it in person so we can witness that hair. I know. Have you thought about that? Like there may be a point when like events are normal again and you could go there and interview these people. That would be person. really fun. Yeah. That would be super fun. Be next level. That yeah. would be really great. Especially because everyone who does live interviews has terrible, crappy sound quality. Yeah. As far as I... You I could guess. show them up, give Maybe. you a few tips. I would need your tips yeah. as the... Not the podfather. Could do the, it. Could do the whole thing for under 300 bucks, and it would sound great. Are you talking about that special thing? It's like, oh, you get you get the, the road something something travel guy. There are like there's like things like that. Yeah. Okay. There's there's gear like that. I I've kind of piecemealed stuff together over the years. Do you have to get them to get into a little hut with you? Like no, a no cone blanket, of silence. No, no cone of silence? No, no. Yeah. It actually if the mics I use, not to go on about it, but I'd love it because it gets just a tiny bit of that background crowd noise, just a tiny bit, but it's like ninety five percent just their vocal. No, it's not one of these. No. Oh, okay. But they work similar, but they're designed for a handheld. Yeah. Wow. They're okay. cool. They're cool. Well, gotta pick one day, brain. right? Dream big. I know. We were joking about you issuing a JB coin to finally cash in on yeah. your notoriety. My big retirement plan. But maybe the JB coin could be used. Maybe it's a JB NFT and you can redeem it for a podcasting course from Chris. I did see some podcaster was selling NFTs for the meetup. You know, it's like a ticket, basically. I'm like, OK, I guess this ticket sales, it kind of makes sense. And then they get a collectible image. <laughs> I mean, as long as you feel like keeping that website online. Well, there's I think always... it'd be cooler if you did a hash of the image and then you could just send the person the image so they could prove that the image reflects the NFT. That's the way to do it. Except there might be bit rot. Like, it can't be a JPEG then, because don't JPEGs change over time because they compress or something? Do they recompress? I think you'd have to, if you resaved it, yeah, you'd have you'd have bit rot. That is true. So if you, like, right-click save as, you'd get some bit rot. Ah. Yeah. Uh... But we'll figure it out. You know, put a little IPFS in there. We'll get it figured out. Get it all dialed in. Oy, oy. Maybe in the meantime, we'll just stick to the booths. <laughs> okay. 
So our last crypto story, God, I hate saying the word crypto. Digital asset? Digital asset is apparently Ukraine's central bank has banned crypto purchases in local currency. Now, before we freak out, because at first I was like, these SOBs, we sent collectively, we sent $100 million in donations via different cryptocurrencies. And now they turn around and tell you you can't even cash it out. Well, that's true for everything. It looks like they've just put a cap of $3,400 per month, and you can't convert to any currency beyond $3,400 a month. U.S. dollars, U.N., whatever it might be, you're stuck because they're having problems. And they've said during the martial law period of time, they are trying to prevent, quote, unproductive outflow of capital from the country. (laughs) When you're in a war, it's martial law and you don't get human rights. And if you support the people in charge, maybe you're okay with that. If you don't support them, you're probably less okay with that, but it's uh, it's too bad. I think it's it's always been difficult being a Ukrainian historically, and this is another hard moment for them. Yeah, because it's not like things are really getting better over there. So the need to flee and to protect your wealth hasn't changed. Now, thirty four hundred dollars per month is something at least, and it is a wartime, like you say. It is. It, you, you hate to see it, but they get into a they get into a point where the National Bank of Ukraine starts to become unstable. Yeah, these they, are sort of the things they, these are, this is what governments do. If people are dumping their currency, what's it called? The Hrenya? Oh, is that it? I was looking, I, I was trying to find it. it. Hrenya? Yeah. I was trying to find a, like a audio clip. Hrenya. Sometimes you can find them on YouTube, you know, like yeah. pronunciations. Gosh. I think this is the first time we've tried to do pronunciations. Oh, it's like a podcast trope. We yeah, did it. We did it. Yeah. 11 episodes. That's not bad. I know. This would be a great NFT. <laughs> <laughs> We actually don't have that many Ukrainian listeners, but we do have some. Yeah, I know. So in our in our data, we have, I think it looks like five or six Ukrainian listeners. So please write in. And if you can boost, boost. If not, send an email to bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com and let us know how you feel about this or what you're thinking about in general and if there's anything we can do to help. And I think that's the end of our crypto stories. And now we will move on to something that I think will be a very fun conversation. I've linked to two articles on Bloomberg, and I'm sorry, it's on Bloomberg, so there's a paywall, but they're both by Matt Levine, who has a really fun free newsletter. I highly recommend it. Matt is just a really clever guy who writes for Bloomberg, and he has written two articles. One is quite recent about the Terra Luna stablecoin, which we've mentioned before. And another is from last year, and it's about the titanium Iron Titan, the Iron Titan stablecoin. It's essentially the same thing as Terra Luna, but it's a failed algorithmic stablecoin. And I think that it's interesting to read these two articles because the Iron Titan stablecoin failure is an example of what I think will probably eventually happen to Terra Luna. Okay. Where should we start? Should we start with the history or start with the current? So maybe just a super re- quick recap. We're talking about Terra Luna here, which is a stable coin that is what they call algorithmically backed. And there's a mechanism where there's one cryptocurrency called Luna, and then there is the US dollar pegged currency called Terra. And the idea is that there's a mechanism to burn one to create the other. And that the system will just automatically do this to just maintain the peg for the stablecoin. And then in recent weeks, it's really gotten a lot of conversation because Do Kwan, one of the key individuals behind this entire initiative, has started purchasing up to a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin to also add this to the mix, which doesn't feel very algorithmic 
algorithmic. <laughs> algorithmic. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem quite like it's the, in the spirit of the project, really, but it has really propelled the Terra stablecoin into general conversation at a point, I would say, when stablecoins themselves are getting a lot of attention, both because of CBDCs, because of the situation in Ukraine, etc., and just because of the market crash. So where do we begin? Do we discuss why stablecoins, or do we discuss how these algorithmic pegs work? I mean, I think why stablecoins could be said quickly. You know, it's a coin that's pegged to the U.S. dollar, and there's good uses for that. Yeah, we live in a dollarized world, so it's useful to have dollar stablecoins. And for instance, if you use the Liquid sidechain, Liquid has a Tether asset on Liquid. So you can transact using this dollar stablecoin on the Liquid sidechain. And that's actually how you buy stuff from the Blockstream store. They'll give you a discount if you use Liquid Bitcoin. Sorry, Liquid Tether. You can also use Liquid Bitcoin. But basically, Blockstream doesn't support Visa because why would they? They're Blockstream. They don't need Visa. And stablecoins appeal to people that I think are a little bit scared of the volatility of the crypto market as well. So a lot of average users, perhaps, that want to digitalize a dollar. This is extremely popular for countries where perhaps they don't have easy access to dollars. And they don't want exposure to that volatility. They just want something that they bought $100 worth of this or whatever it is, and it maintains $100 when they go to spend it. Right. If you have high time preference and there is a lot of inflation and crazy stuff happening in your country, and I know this is true in Africa. I've heard that in Africa, Tether on Tron is a very common use case. Basically, Tether is the US dollar stablecoin, and Tron is the garbage blockchain that's an Ethereum clone that was created by Justin Sun, who's a massive scammer. Also, Justin, feel free to come on the pod, though maybe not. I hear he's really unpleasant. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I could always find out. You could always have a conversation and find out. Do a little, uh, you know, screening. I've heard that he's attacked people. Maybe do it over the phone. Don't do it in person. We can do it on the Mumble server. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so the stablecoin, I think, kind of is that's part self-explanatory. So what's going on with Terra and Luna? And what makes this different than, say, something like the uh, USDC or Tether? USDC and Tether are both stablecoins that are backed by some assets. So dollars in a bank account or a portfolio of bonds, financial assets, and dollars. So essentially with USDC and Tether, the risk model is this thing is probably worth a dollar as long as this company will always pay out dollars and redeem their tokens for dollars. And you know, it's, it's pretty understandable. It's basically like a bank, except a full reserve bank, theoretically. So what's an algo coin? Essentially, in the case of Luna and Terra, or... Maker die. So Maker die is a little different, I think. Okay, because that's Maker, what I was curious about. Yeah, Maker die is collateralized, and it's, it's quite complicated. And Maker die has actually always worked, quote unquote. I mean, people lose money. Yeah. Because you can lose your collateral, but it's never really broken. Mm -hmm. Whereas with an algo coin that's a stable coin and then another token, these things can straight up break. So how does it work? Essentially, Terra is the dollar coin and Luna is the speculative altcoin. So how does it maintain the peg? Well, when when the dollar coin starts trading for more than one dollar, the algorithm or the oracle, I don't know how this is actually implemented. And the implementation is a big risk too, because if there's a, a central point of failure, the code could just break maybe. But if the dollar coin is now trading for more than a dollar, the system automatically creates more of it and buys the Luna token until it's the dollar coin trades for $1 again. And again, when the dollar coin trades under a dollar, the protocol creates more Luna token and buys the dollar coin to raise up the dollar coin so it's equal to a dollar. Yeah, and if you look at the quote-unquote price action, 
of the uh, TerraCoin UST, you'll see like it has very, very small deviations, 99 cents, 98 cents a dollar. And it just kind of bounces in that range mostly. Right. And you could say, okay, well, the system works. So in that case, why is Do Kwan buying all this Bitcoin to back up this, the algo coin if the algo works? And I think that this brings us to the story of Iron Titan. So Iron and Titan were these two altcoins. One was a dollar coin and one was a just a speculative altcoin, almost exactly like, sorry, I, I had this wrong. The, the token is called Iron Titanium. So the token name was Titan and the stable coin was known as Iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is so stupid. Iron and Iron Titanium. Yeah. Okay. So essentially what happened was the problem with algo coins is that there are certain moments where every asset correlates. So what does this mean? It means that in a crisis, people sell everything. Yeah. You're going to risk off. You're going to get rid of your Luna. You're getting rid of all get of your altcoins. Sell it all. And so what happens is, let's think about the redemption mechanism. The US dollar coin is going down in price. It's, it's, it's broken the bank. It's now only trading at 98. The Oracle activates and it creates more of the other token to buy the dollar coin back to $1, except the other coin is already going down. So as you're creating more tokens, the coin is actually losing value. And so those tokens are actually forcing the value down more because essentially as you're increasing the number of Luna coins or or, um, iron coins in this, sorry, iron titanium coins in the case of titanium, the price is already going down. You create more coins, the price goes down further. And what happens is as the token essentially demonetizes and has no, no value, you end up needing to create like a million, a billion coins to buy the stable coin back to $1, but you can't because it's just lost all the value. And so you can kind of have this feedback loop at a moment of extreme volatility, which can just blow up these stable coins. So how do you fix that? Well, essentially, Matt Levine's argument is you need to move to a different security model. What really makes a stable coin work is that, like the dollar, people just treat it like a thing that they use. It's just the thing you use. It's adoption. And they're trying to get there by subsidizing the anchor protocol so that people want to hold Luna and Terra so that they can earn a very high yield in this DeFi protocol. It's nearly 20%. Wow, 20%. That's a, that's a very high yield. It's declining. It, they're slowly bringing it down to earth, but yeah. Right. Yeah, but the idea is, is that at that high juicy rate, people were going to be locking up as much Luna as possible. Right, except Justin Sun has just created a copycat protocol. So if Justin is offering 20%, why don't I go play in Justin's pool? You know, you could, what often happens in DeFi is everyone leaves the protocol at the same time and it just goes to zero. So this could happen. Yeah, and so this is where the Bitcoin purchases come in. Right. And so Matt points out that one way to get to adoption is you start with an algo stablecoin model. It doesn't break. You make some money because you've been able to print a altcoin token that people are ascribing value to, and you can sell that for Bitcoin or something. And now you have a treasury. So even if the, the, the peg breaks, there's kind of a bottom because you have a bunch of Bitcoin and that's worth something, right? Well, I would say wrong because you can't actually guarantee a US dollar value with a non-US dollar asset because this peg will break in a moment of financial contagion and panic. And so Bitcoin will be going down too at this time. Is Bitcoin going to go to zero? No. But will it lose a lot of value? Yes. Will it necessarily shore up confidence in your algo coin? Who knows? So I view this as an interesting experiment and clearly Doquan is getting very rich doing this. I personally 
see a lot of risk in participating in that ecosystem. Yeah, I have to agree, unfortunately, because I'm a big fan of the idea of something that is a decentralized stablecoin that is algo-backed simply because our alternatives seem to be USDC and Tether, which are essentially centralized and as good as a CBDC. So I also would love to see this. And it's possible that they play this thing out well enough that they get to a point where the Terra UST stablecoin gets such large adoption that it does just start getting traded because it starts getting treated like just a dollar. Because one thing I've noticed, and this is just very early, but I watched Luna and Terra extremely closely during the 40% drawdown at the beginning of 2022. And I wanted to see if it would break because that was a very rapid drawdown that happened quickly. And that seemed like the perfect opportunity to break the sucker. And it didn't break then. And I thought this is going to give people some confidence. And I think this Bitcoin backing, even though I agree with you, isn't actually really solving the core problem. I think it is giving people confidence. So what happens in a scenario where they kind of have the tether effect and they just manage not to blow it up long enough that people start to trust it and use it? Because it is moving up the coin charts. It is moving up in terms of size and usage. I think that the real test is what happens to Terra Luna when a competing protocol offers a higher yield, and then people who are involved in it have to make the decision, do I stay with this quote-unquote tried and trusted protocol and earn less, or do I act like a degen trader and just go for maximum return YOLO? Well, if the success that they're seeing right now would seem to suggest that people go for that. (laughs) Yeah. Personally, I don't think the 40% drawdown in Bitcoin was the big shock. That might have actually represented people rotating out of Bitcoin into more speculative DeFi and NFT assets. Well, and also when the drawdown happened, people started using their U.S. stablecoins more. Like now what happens during a market drawdown is people bail out into stablecoins and then they buy back when the market's going back up. And stablecoins are not necessarily selling off. They're becoming in higher demand during a market downturn. I just feel like I have to resist with my whole being to echo that term, this is not financial advice, because I mean, it's such a BS cop out. Obviously, these are financial opinions. At the same time, I really hope that no one's listening to us and thinking, oh, my God, this is a great idea. I should go and try this. That just that would make me feel very sad. No, any dollars that you spend again, what do I know? But any dollars that you spend on Luna could have just been spent on Bitcoin. And one day you'll be grateful that that money went to Bitcoin and not something as silly as Luna. I mean, maybe I'll be wrong. We'll see. But it does seem like it's a matter of when, not if, because it takes if you add a market crash or you take a or when a market crash happens and a really good competing DeFi alternative comes up, it's so easy for people to move their assets in the digital era. It's not like the old days where, you know, a stockbroker's got your stocks and you're not going to self-custodial your stocks, right? That wasn't an option. And now we have that kind of flexibility. We can take our business otherwhere quickly. So if you get a market crash, you get some business going otherwhere. Uh, somewhere else, that really will be the true test of fire for Luna and Terra. Absolutely. Yeah, things fail very quickly in this new digital era. Right. It doesn't fail until it does. And then it'll be dramatic when it does. This here episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted podcast from Jupiter Broadcasting. Self-hosted show is my podcast with my buddy Alex about running your own digital infrastructure. Why not be self-sovereign with your data? Right, We're all about that. Host your own media server, control your home and your IoT devices, make multiple different IoT vendors that are all cloud connected, work together locally on your LAN. I've built all of my home network, all of my home automation to work without an internet connection. No cloud required. 
talk about that and a lot more at selfhosted.show. Wow. And Chris, is self-hosting your own services good for privacy? It is. It is. That's very true. Because, you know, really think about anytime you access Google Maps or any service that's hosted, they're getting metrics on when you connect, time of day, the IP address, the location, even just that kind of metadata is super useful. Not to mention just collecting all the information that you then supply to those services. Like I, I know like Google Photos, right? Oh, Google Photos is so handy. But they're getting facial recognition. They're getting location recognition. They're getting object recognition. Interjection. I use PhotoPrism at home. There you go. That's what I was just going to mention. Which I heard about on your show. And yep. it is so great. PhotoPrism actually does a lot of the Google Photos object recognition, but it does it locally on my own computer. So Google doesn't get to scan all my photos. I scan them myself, and then I can search for dog and find a picture of my dog. You know, I also think it's available as an Umbral app. Another Umbral app, I think. I think you can install PhotoPrism with Umbral. Yes, I saw that. I ha have to say I scratched my head because I thought, do we really want to put all sorts of nah. other miscellaneous data on the same node with a Bitcoin wallet? Well, unless you're a fancy guy like you and you got multiple nodes and some nodes are like less serious than other nodes, you know. If you think of the Bitcoin node aspect of it as just one of the many services the box is doing and you're not actually like storing money on it, then I see the logic. Okay, that's, that's a good point. And by the way, I'm not trying to flex when I describe the many computers that <laughs> run my life. I was just giving it's you a hard sickness. time. It's no, a sickness. I know, right? <laughs> Don't. Don't follow me on this path. Too many computers is bad. I know. When I can't hear the humming, I just feel incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's what we talk about on the self-hosted show. So today's Bitcoin education segment was slightly contested. Yeah, there was a heated discussion mm. before the podcast about this. Yeah, well, it gets weird. It is weird. There is a new protocol proposed by Lightning Labs called Taro. And Taro is a color coin protocol. I think I've mentioned this before. If you've ever been to a concert or something and there are beer tokens and they're, they're basically quarters with uh, some tape on it or a picture drawn on it or something, and you can exchange it for a drink at the concert. But outside the concert, concert, it's just a quarter, so you could use it in your laundry machine. This is sort of a color coin, and color coins have existed on Bitcoin for a long time. BISC, the decentralized exchange, which I did an episode about, and we'll do another episode about when I finally complete a trade, hopefully. Takes a while. Decentralization, it's not easy. Yeah, really. I, I saw you mentioning in our matrix chat room on the, we have a by the way, colony.jupiterbroadcasting.com. There's a Bitcoin matrix chat room. I saw you mentioning that you're still waiting for a trade. Like I thought they happened well, immediately. I totally no, misunderstood. No, I, I messed it up because my computer went to sleep and I failed my trade. Now I have to set it up again. <laughs> you know, we're not saying non-KYC and peer-to-peer -peer is always easy. Sometimes yeah. it's a bit of an adventure. I mean, it it's honestly, I feel myself changing as I do it. Because once you go through that much suffering, it has to be worth it. I'm sure that afterwards I'll be like, oh, yeah, never use a centralized right, exchange. Right. Oh, this is so great. But it's it's really a trial by fire. Well, I'm glad you're doing it so that way I can see how it goes and maybe I'll try it later. <laughs> okay. Well, news incoming. But BISC is run by a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, and they vote using a color coin, a BISC token that is built on top of Bitcoin. And what they do is they, they spend a little extra Bitcoin to put a message in the op return data field of the Bitcoin transaction that identifies this as a BISC token. If you're running the BISC software, you can kind of scan for this op return signal. That makes sense. Okay. But what's the problem there? Well, you're adding more data to the chain. It's not transaction data. It's like a message, but it's still data that has to be stored by every node. So that's not very scalable. So Tarot is designed with Schnorr signatures and Lightning in mind. So 
I don't un- understand it well enough to provide a comprehensive description, but Tarot allows you to create assets on top of Bitcoin. I think it's basically designed for stable coins. Bringing dollar stable coins to Bitcoin is probably the goal. And it hides the data that identifies it as a colored coin inside the Schnorr signature, essentially. So it looks like a Bitcoin UTXO. It looks like a Bitcoin transaction. But if you're in the know, if you're running the software that enables Tarot, you can see that it's a, it's a color coin. And so you get this benefit of having this color coin but with the security of the Bitcoin network. That's the idea. And honestly, I don't think it makes sense necessarily because look at the developing world. People are using Tether on Tron. They're using stable coins on really low quality blockchains because they're cheap. Will they necessarily want to pay more in fees for the quote unquote security of Bitcoin for an asset that's still the the liability of a third party? I don't know. Yeah, and you could see where you'd really have to have lightning involved to keep the cost down. And the only, and I like this idea. I've always liked this idea, but it doesn't seem like a market winner to me. It feels like too many layers. It feels like too many interdependencies when you have other things already on the market that do this job and don't need all this layering and, you know, and don't even really have an association with Bitcoin for better or for worse. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, there's an interesting history to color coins on Bitcoin because I think first there was counterparty. And Counterparty was the was is a layer on top of Bitcoin where the first NFTs were issued. So people think NFTs is this new technology. No, it's a 2014 Bitcoin technology that Bitcoiners got tired of. And it's been rediscovered. And now, you know, there's all sorts of crazy speculation. By the way, did I tell you that I went down the NFT rabbit hole one night? No, I almost did too. I, I ended up not. But yeah, what happened to you? I was on Twitter, okay. first mistake, yep. and I saw someone commented on something. So I clicked on their bio, and there was a, it was a bit pretty low-quality Twitter account. And I clicked on a link, and it led me to the NFTs they were promoting. And I mean, these NFTs are so stupid. They're computer-generated, bad quality. They look like art from an 80s Japanese video game. Yeah, and they're auto-generated. And they're and, auto-generated. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. and, it's, and I was looking at the prices, and it's like, Whoa, you want you want someone to pay five hundred dollars for this auto generated piece of junk? And That's there crazy. are like a thousand of them. I know. I know. Why, how would that ever have value? You know, I've never gotten it until I was sucked in recently. I told you about it off air, and maybe on air, but that was that Mount Gox, yes, that Mount Gox has offered former customers who had some of their Bitcoin stolen in a breach, which I did, essentially like a badge of honor NFT. That basically claims that, you know, you're an OG Mt. Goxer and that you had your Bitcoin stolen. So basically, I got totally pwned NFT. Yeah. like You wanted that? Well, you know what it was, is it was it was a way to like actually represent the fact that I was truly like an old time Bitcoiner. You know, it's like it's provable, like I've been around forever. I mean, I guess there's other ways to do that, but. I didn't actually end up going through it. They asked too many. They wanted me to do too many hoops to too many hoops to jump through, and I just thought, what am I going to do with this NFT anyways? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want this trouble. <laughs> so I just, I gave up. But for a hot minute, I thought that'd be pretty neat. Well, you literally have the Plan B podcast archives. So ten, that's true. Ten years ago, there is young Chris talking idealistically about Bitcoin, imagining that, hey, maybe one day it'll be used by larger companies or something. Yeah, that's fair. To, to bring it back to color coins on Bitcoin, so first you had Counterparty, which was issuing NFTs. Then you had Omni, and Omni was another color coin protocol. There was a, an ICO, I think the, the master coin ICO on this. That rings a bell. I don't really know too much about it. I don't think it was very useful in the end. Yeah. 
And then there was this idea of a color coin protocol called RGB. And RGB received some funding. And they've, I think for the past year, their website says that they're, they've been in an alpha stage, that they have something, but it's not ready for anyone to use. And I think this is kind of the theme with RGB. I don't think anyone's ever actually managed to use it. So Tarot is very, very similar to this RGB color coin protocol, but it doesn't mention them and probably because... RGB doesn't have really good documentation, so I get the sense they're not that easy to work with. So this is now, but also Zotero is also taking advantage of Taproot, which is kind of new to Bitcoin since, you know, at least this is one of the things that makes this different. And it's being backed by, you said, Lightning Labs, right? Which are pretty significant players in the Lightning space. They just raised some more money, like they've got some funds. So do you think there's going to be a different outcome this time? I suspect that the goal is stable coins on Lightning so that you can do DeFi on Lightning. I think that because Lightning Labs is VC-funded, VCs tend to like DeFi-like applications because it's a place to do a lot of financial speculation. So they might be trying to bring that to Lightning and kind of gobble up some of the Ethereum DeFi Hmm. speculation market. Hmm. Who knows? See, my take is it's a defensive play because they're worried. See, as Lightning Labs, they're invested in the whole Bitcoin ecosystem. And I think they're worried some of these cheaper, less secure chains are going to come along and offer options to like third world third world developing countries and places that have high demand for stable coins that have nothing to do with the lightning network or nothing to do with bitcoin and for lightning labs i think it's those actually pose a bit of an existential threat to their long term existence so their thought was let's just deliver what people seem to want over bitcoin and lightning i think it's like a defensive response to the actual utility that some of these erc20 tokens have actually managed to create yeah, fair point. I think that what you're describing is how altcoins break digital scarcity because it doesn't matter if there's a finite supply of bitcoins if I can just create new tokens arbitrarily. By creating new categories of tokens, there essentially are infinite tokens and this might break scarcity. And I think that this does certainly slow down bitcoin adoption. Another view is that altcoins are the market trying to find new use cases and find new applications. And one way for Bitcoin to evolve is to observe these altcoin protocols and see if there's something worth keeping from there. Perhaps and, you know, implementing it in a more Bitcoin way. Right. In a sane way that works instead of having these jury-rigged smart contracts with backdoors and all sorts of nonsense that's pretty typical in the DeFi space these days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's a brand trust, right? If you think about it, my stablecoin, it runs on the Bitcoin network. That feels to me like something more trustworthy. Here we are. We're talking about our concerns with Tether. We're talking about our concerns with Terra. Um, it wouldn't necessarily change some of the fundamentals, but having something that uses Bitcoin as the blockchain I think inherently does give me more confidence in it. That's why I think when the Lightning Network came along, I rolled all of the confidence that I have in the security of the Bitcoin network into Lightning. And I just sort of, it it was a barrier that was removed from me and it turned out to be still a whole different thing I had to learn. But that barrier was removed because it was based on Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a thought. I don't know quite how I would respond. I feel that if this is an open protocol, it means that anyone can use it. So I could issue my own dollar coin, whether or not I have any backing or have any business doing that. Yeah. I don't know. That might be dangerous because there's mm-hmm. no, there's no, just because I can issue an asset on Bitcoin doesn't mean that right. it has any value. Right. So I yeah. don't know. Yeah. There's different kinds of security too, right? There's, there's right. networks, protocol security, and there's security in the asset and it not <laughs> dumping all of its value on you. Sure. It's so funny when we start talking about this stuff, I really realize how early days it is. 
And I'm going to be lucky if I get to see this stuff even really get even 90% sorted out. Yeah. I mean, and you've been in it for years. You know, you've done your time in Bitcoin and then you came back for more. I, that's exactly what I did. And you know why? Is because when I came back, it was I felt more confident than I did ever. Like it, it, everything it needed to accomplish, it was accomplishing. The adoption cycle was at the right place. Like everything I'd hoped for early on was happening with the exception of all this altcoin craziness. Now, when I look at it now, I think the core things about Bitcoin are, you know, those are still great. Those are still really safe. But this kind of stuff, it's like the stable coins and the adoption of the Lightning Network. This is a new frontier. And I find it really exciting, but really early days. My sense is that one of the things that has brought you back into Bitcoin is that you see Lightning and Podcasting 2.0 as a way to save podcasting. Definitely. Not just that, but I take it beyond podcasting, and I think it is potentially one day a way to help monetize free software, which is a dramatic problem in the free software community. So many developers are working for free. They're totally tapped out. They are the developer. They're the support. They're the marketing. They're the publisher, and they don't get a dollar for it. And a lot of them are not in the U.S. They're in a country where they need a different currency always. There's conversions. Maybe they can't use PayPal. It's very complicated. So I've always felt that if we could help keep podcasting monetized and decentralized and focused on the audience, then we are building a network of users that could also help keep free software, things like Linux, monetized and decentralized. Because we are also seeing a frightening centralization in the free software community with the Linux Foundation. God bless them. You know, they pay Linus's paycheck. But the reality is anything that makes money, anything that is important in the market has essentially been centralized at the Linux Foundation. And that means all of these other support projects like NPM libraries and all these other little bits that actually make everything work but don't have a name that generates money on some corporate balance sheet, they don't get funded. And that's truly what makes up free software which powers a lot of what runs Bitcoin and the entire internet infrastructure. And so I feel like the network effect that starts with podcasting could grow to also help monetize things on the internet like free software that genuinely have value and make our lives better. What Podcasting 2.0 shows me is that when you build in a tool that allows seamless payments and then you can make it interesting because you can send a message too, then you're more likely to make a tiny payment. Before Lightning, I was not so interested in spending Bitcoin. But now with Podcasting 2.0, it's really cool because every podcast I listen to, I can directly send the host a, a thought or a message. And frankly, I know they're going to read it because I read every one. Even if it's 10 cents or a penny, if someone spent a little money on you, you're going to care. Like, who doesn't like getting presents? Everyone likes getting presents. It is, it is something baked into our animal brains, man. I have I, I dug up an old monitor I wasn't using and uh, I put it on its side and I have it mounted now and I have the boost up all the time in my office. I have a screen dedicated just to the boost because it's it's my favorite way to get messages. And every time one comes in, I smile a little bit, you know, and I, I just picture that that right there. That could be how we pay contractors in the future. You know, people that JB contracts with. Like, I think that could be a great system for paying contractors. I think it's a great system for paying developers. It's powerful. I'd also like to give a shout out to our community if we have developers who are listening. I think that we need more Podcasting 2.0 integrations. Specifically, right now, I think Fountain.fm is the most usable Podcasting 2.0 wallet. But I really like the AntennaPod app for Android for listening to podcasts. And that's where most of my podcasts live. And it seems that they're not really actively building in Podcasting 2.0 functionality. And I understand it's complicated because they need to host some infrastructure to make that happen. For the value for value lightning part, yes. But there's, you know, podcasting 2.0 
is a series of things. It's also transcripts, it's chapters, it's live broadcasts in the podcast app. It's a whole suite of features that podcasting has needed for over a decade. The podcast app itself can have a cut of the boost. So it's a way for the project to fund itself. I think we really need like a developer push to sort of see if we can, you know, maybe even, I mean, I'd be willing to spend some money helping people develop this, but we need to have this built into the tooling so that it's easy to use and we get a critical mass of people using it and demanding it from their, the podcast they listen to. And I, I mean, I say demanding it. I mean, it's not really a demand. It's like, hey, I listen to your podcast and I would love to send you money. Do you mind enabling podcasting 2.0 in your podcast? And I think the rational response is, you want to send me money? Yes, I will do 30 minutes of work to enable that. Yeah. I mean, so many podcasters work so damn hard. It just brightens their day, you know, and the same thing for developers. It's it's so great when you could build a network effect and it's an open network, right? We're not asking people to sign up for some proprietary thing that's owned by some commercial company. It's an open network. And it's feedback because if I send you some money on PayPal because I like your podcast, then I also have to send you an email and say, hey, just sent you something on PayPal. So it's like two steps. And once I send something on PayPal, do I really want to send you an email telling you about it? I mean, I, that now I feel like kind of a, like a jerk. But with the Boost system, because you send a small message with a payment, it's seamless and, I don't know, it just works together really well. It does. And then it's fun. I mean, I, I as a podcast listener, I love doing it. So, yeah, we need it in more apps. We definitely need it in a Tenopod. That'd be great. I'd also be willing to throw a little money towards a bounty or something. Let's organize this. Yeah. Yeah. We'll uh, figure out a way to get some interest on integrating that and compensating anyone who's willing to put in the time. And if you're on iOS, I also really like Castomatic. The nice thing about Castomatic, although Fountain also works on iOS and it's great, Castomatic will import your OPML feed from your existing podcast app. So if you already have a podcast app you like, you can move your feeds over into Castomatic. And Castomatic has CarPlay support. So if you've got a, if you got a car that does that, Fountain FM does not yet offer that. But I've been using the clipping feature in Fountain FM. This is another fun way to support shows, like shows I listen to when they have a really great point. I'm clipping them now. Oh, it's it's good because they um they do like a transcript too. Yeah. But I find that it it often fails on my but I install from Graphene on Graphene using Fdroid, so maybe because my setup's a little wonky. Every now and then I have to hit the clip button in Fountain twice to get it because it, it it uploads the whole file up to their cloud server to transcribe it. So if that upload fails, then the transcript won't work. On the subject of Castomatic, our next boost comes from a Castomatic listener who was listening to episode 10, Cross Input Monetary Death Cult. That was a pretty extreme title. I, I, know. <laughs> I know. I didn't know the title before we published that one because, you know, you picked it afterwards, which is, you know, dad's prerogative. And I looked at that and thought, that's a wild title. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I went more extreme than I intended at the end because, I, look, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be your ranty dad. I want to be your calm and supportive Bitcoin dad. At the same time, the implications of CBDCs and increasing financial control seem to be really, really bad. So sometimes uh, sometimes that can come out. Thanks for all the advice on this podcast. You inspired me to try harder to resurrect an old wallet from 2009. Hey, cool. Wow. Wait, 2009? Wait. No. No, that's before Bitcoin. 2011? Holy crap, this is Satoshi. It could be. That would be Satoshi Nakamoto right there. I was successful giving me a tidy rainy day fund. Ugh, wow. Wow. Go, imagine going from no safety net, or I'm not sure who knows, right? But in my scenario, it would be going from no safety net to safety net. Just imagine, imagine how good that would feel. 
This morning, I placed most of it in my first hardware wallet, which I bought with a little of the BTC. Wow, what an arc. Good call. Oh, man. That's, that's a great. great move. That's great. Yeah, I hope they're using Sparrow Wallet or, I don't know. I mean, you can use so many wallets with a hardware wallet. Yeah. Uh, just, in, just a thought. If you're using the Trezor Web wallet, try not to use that because web wallets are just bad news. They make us nervous. They make us both nervous. I mean, you can be tricked into going to the wrong website pretty easily. I'm willing. Yeah. Yeah. That's just it. It's operationally, in my opinion, and it sounds like dad's the the browser is just kind of a risky uh, application to begin with, kind of a high attack area. It's Mad Max in the browser. Yeah. And, you know, it is really easy to get tricked. Uh, I really would prefer that stuff to be in a standalone application. I got to try it, though, because I always, I, my hesitation with saying that is I've never actually tried the Trezor web wallet. So, so that is my disclaimer. I have tried the Trezor web wallet, and I would say stay away. Our next boost comes from a guy named Ryan. Hi, Bitcoin Dad and Chris. Haven't had a Bitcoin podcast in my rotation since Plan B. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Oh my gosh, Chris, you just reached out and touched so many people a decade ago, but you didn't know because you didn't have boosts. It's true. That's a good point. I was missing that signal. And I'm learning quite a lot from you both. What are your thoughts on brave attention tokens? Keep up the great work. A guy named Ryan, in parentheses, because Chris butchers usernames. It's true. I mean, imagine if you got to read millions of rando usernames off the internet. Um, You know, I want to love Bat. The brave attention token. I the idea seems clever. Can you explain it to me? So the concept is is that uh, the browser is kind of keeping track of where you spend your time and energy, and different publishers can opt into the brave attention token, and it supplements advertising. So instead of you looking at ads, you reading their website generates bats, and then you can cash bats in at any kind of exchange that supports them. And Brave has a little wallet, and they're working on integration with Gemini and some other exchanges. So the idea is is that you know, let's say you go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and traditionally, which we never did, but let's say Jupiter Broadcasting had banner ads all over our website. Well, if you show up in Brave and you are participating in the BAT program, maybe I render a version of the website for you that doesn't actually have any ads. And then you and I, we earn a little Brave attention tokens together and monetize your visitation that way. It's sort of a passive system that you can participate in. I know some listeners love it. I know other listeners think it's kind of a joke. I've checked it out briefly but never really participated in it have you looked at it no because i personally think that attempts to individually monetize personal data don't make sense i believe that there's a bit of a cognitive misstep when you go from google and facebook are super valuable companies because they have all my data to my data is valuable what's going on is that google and facebook have all the data from everybody that's valuable That's maybe even worth billions of dollars. But your individual data has zero value. It's all the data together. And so I think that programs like Brave Attention Token, maybe they're laudable. Maybe their goal is positive. I just don't see it as really fundamentally working. And I'm generally hostile to the creation of new tokens because, again, creating new tokens if they're supposed to act like money, and if you're selling it, it's it's some sort of monetary good, it dilutes the value proposition, and it's a return to barter. So in my view, it's kind of a step backwards from Bitcoin. I could see your point. And what I have been finding, one of my favorite websites is stacker.news. And last night I made like 200 sats on stacker.news. And so this is a news site that obviously leans very Bitcoin heavy that uses sats to reward good posts and to reward good comments, sort of like upvotes on Reddit. But instead, it's sats. 
And so you don't necessarily need advertising and you don't necessarily need a custom bat token. Oh yeah. So yeah, here I made 123 sats last night because I posted about the BTC pay server project is working on a plugin for podcast hosting to do value for value podcast hosting using BTC pay. And I posted that over at stacker.news and I got 123 sats. And if somebody were to comment with a comment that adds a lot of value, like maybe source links or other uh, information from the article that's relevant, then people reward those good comments with sats. And it leads to higher quality posts. There's a, it's an interesting way to just bypass the whole attention thing altogether and just reward good quality content and comments. So again, that's stacker.news. It's an interesting experiment to watch. It's very early. You know, they get about a thousand daily active users right now, uh, but it's growing pretty rapidly and it's kind of creating a nice community over there and they're just using lightning how great is that that's super positive i can't really comment because i've never used it so i will refrain from until i have more information you know what i'll do though i'll put a link in the show notes cool our next boost comes from i'm not sure from castomatic and again it was from episode 10 and the comment is bring jim on from 2.5 admins for a debate went from listening to 2.5 admins to the Bitcoin dad and would love to hear Jim rationalize his position and see if common ground can be found. I think this was in a comment to me saying that Jim's anti-Bitcoin stance based on the very bad textbook that his son brought home from school was not very defendable. I wouldn't be opposed to talking to Jim. To be honest, I think Bitcoin would be the last thing I'd want to talk to Jim about. He's such an interesting guy and he, he knows so much about systems administration. I would much rather talk to him about ZFS, yeah, yeah. Nagio, Sanoid. system monitoring. Oh, I use Sanoid every day. It's a beautiful system. Yeah. And this is his tool for ZFS backup and replication. Yep. I think, you know, it's something that you and I have been kind of touching on in various various conversations offline, but we haven't really said said it so implicitly. But it's almost like for some folks, it's going to be until there's a need for Bitcoin in their life before they get it. And you could go around arguing with everybody. But at the end of the day, I can tell you that when I was doing this for Linux back in like 98, 97 and 2000, your best winning argument is when you're solving a problem for somebody. And if they don't have a problem to solve, you're going to have a really hard time convincing them of thinking about things differently. And I think that's sort of probably the deal with Jim, in a sense, is he doesn't really have a need for Bitcoin right now. I don't think he sees a lot of practical use for it in his life. And so it's, it would be pretty hard to convince somebody to adopt something that they think is not very valuable at the moment. And that's just going to change with time as things change. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd love to chat with Jim. And if he wants to be challenged on his views on Bitcoin, I'd love to have yeah. him on. Yeah, I think that'd be a really interesting conversation. At the same time, based on what he said in his critique of this textbook, I don't think he has a strong grasp of Bitcoin fundamentals. And I don't know if Bitcoin fundamentals are something that can be grasped in sort of an interview or one conversation, especially given the amount of energy FUD and other stuff he kind of threw at it. So I don't, I don't know how that would go. I mean, it'd be interesting to try. I'm, I'm always down to talk to someone who I don't agree with. Those are generally the most interesting conversations, frankly. Bitcoin can be one of those things that takes like a few passes. It took me a few passes. Mm -hmm. Linux I mean, too, right? Linux can take sometimes a few passes before it really sticks. For me, it was I was completely unaware of it until my MacBook Air was bricked by an Apple update, and then I was suddenly 100% Linux. <laughs> you know, it's because you had a problem to solve. Yeah. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Actually, I guess Bitcoin solved a problem for me too, but one of my most regretful memories is I would say a month before I sort of grokked Bitcoin, 
I was talking to someone who was considering buying some Bitcoin and I was like very discouraged. Talked him out of it. I, yeah, talk, yeah. I, I feel like I talked him out of it, but then I ran into him again and I was like, hey man, I was 100% wrong. I was so wrong and I'm sorry. And you, you should, you should go for it. And he was like, nah, I moved on. I did something else. <laughs> it happens. You know, I was listening to one of my buddies. I won't, I won't out him, but he's a, he's a podcaster. And uh, he was doing this, somebody wrote in and asked him about Bitcoin. He's going on about how cool, bit, how great Bitcoin is and about how necessary it is. And then he ends it with, but I totally don't think you should buy it. It's not a good investment. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. I'm like, well, <laughs> Okay, all right. I guess, you know, if you want to play it safe, I guess that's the thing that to say. That might be the not financial advice. Yeah, exactly. Like, I have to say this. Yeah. It's not financial advice. At the same time, I mean, I, I guess I just, like, a twisted part of me wants to see that court case, which is, like, I was listening to a podcast done by two goofballs on the internet, and as a result of something they said, I made a financial investment, and now I'm angry at them. You know, it's, right. like, it's like, yes, I, I yeah. agree. That was a terrible decision. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not the podcasters that I'll ever have to worry about. It's going to be them YouTubers. You know, somebody who's some financial advice YouTuber is going to get busted one day. Right. Well, I think that the issue is you have to sort of demonstrate that someone, or I don't know if you have to demonstrate, but basically people are making money off the advice they're giving. They have like an undisclosed stake or something. And it's pretty clear we have a stake. So. <laughs> Nothing undisclosed about it. Nothing undisclosed. Our next boost from Cardanerd. I wonder if that's a Cardana friend. Cardanerd? Mm, maybe. Maybe. Have you considered Sphinx Tribe for the podcast and a place to chat? I love Matrix, but Sphinx has some interesting tech. You know, I have. We've had recommendations to try Sphinx, and I set up a Sphinx channel on my Lightning node, on my Umbral. And Rad, okay. I actually just tried to pair it with the Sphinx app again, and I got the same mistake, tor off, java.io.io exception, tor executable file not found. Oh, so this is like a, what, like some sort of SAT-based chat system? Is, I mean, how does this even work? I've seen it, I've seen it, and I've thought, huh, that sounds cool. I have no idea conceptually, though, how something like this would work. You open a Lightning channel with a Sphinx node, and they encode messages as satoshis that you send back and forth and so like the way that boosts filter out trolling by adding a small cost to every message you know sphinx chat does that now i had kind of a weird introduction to sphinx chat i actually know about sphinx chat because i met the guy who built the sphinx chat competitor that you haven't heard of yeah and i actually i guess we should have him on the pod he's an interesting guy i'm Super fascinated about anyone who's building tooling around Lightning right now. It's a very interesting area of development. Oh, maybe you'd be willing to break your three-person interview rule hmm. for this? Yeah, maybe. You know, it would be easier if we did the interview here. Like, if you were here. If we we're in the same room, it's a lot easier. Oh, then let's do that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, Cardinerd, I'd love for Sphinx to work and to try it, but I haven't gotten it to yet. So, maybe I'll try a different phone or... Do they have a desktop app? I'll investigate. I don't know. I actually kind of feel like this is an opportunity for people to boost in and tell us any software that they've used that sort of takes sats and uses it in a way that's unexpected. Kind of like Stacker News and Sphincter Chat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <I'm kidding. laughs> okay. Okay. That's horrible. <laughs> Our next boost is from DPG. Hey, guys. I found a P2P Lightning trading bot on Telegram. Te Telegram. Telegram. Sorry. At LNP2P bot. It was vouched for on a on SN. What's SN? Stacker News. Oh, Stacker News. Yeah. And I'm giving it a try now. 
you know, he's probably looking at the same one I saw in Stacker News and I'm also trying out right now. Yeah. I haven't I haven't done any purchases, but crypto or just goods in general are available for PDP trading on there. You know, somebody will post some heirloom and, you know, set a sat price for it. Like an heirloom tomato? Yeah. Yeah. Like delicious tomatoes. You know, I could look. I should go look to see what's because there's stuff. There's activity going on in there all the time. And there's sales happening, too. It's not just people like talking into an echo chamber. There's actually uh, people buying. Uh, oh, like here's an example is this guy is selling a stainless steel wallet key, you know, s- save your seed key plate for 0.001 Bitcoin. I still don't know what that is in dollars. Actual I, cash? No. Yeah, I, I mean, but I know it's a the world is priced in dollars. That's my how I have to price things. And like, here's another thing, like a bobcat miner. Right. So there's some people selling their miner hardware, everything you could think of. Things around the house, PC parts, books. A bobcat is a Bitcoin miner. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard of that. Sunglasses. Oh, I have those sunglasses. Uh, they, they have dazzlers in them, so yeah. they hide your face if uh, someone takes a picture. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, here's some postcards from the Ukraine war. <laughs> this is actually a great one. Raspberry Pi. Somebody can, is actually selling a Raspberry Pi. Those are hard to get their hand on right now. Oh, yeah. I actually have one in a box. I feel bad for... Actually, no, I think I... You know, technically now I think it's just considered hodling. <laughs> Raspberry Pis? Yeah, because they're going up in price so much. Oh. <laughs> I set up a Raspberry Blitz node. And then I just decided I didn't like Raspberry Pis because I I really dislike the SD card. It stresses me out. Number one problem with them, in my opinion. I mean, that's why I went for the Rock Pro. Mm -hmm. I really like those. They're very well built. But again, there's just less tooling around them, unfortunately. The compute module, the Raspberry Pi 4 compute module, you can buy them with eMMC storage, which is superior. It's like 100 megabit throughput and uh, much, 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 much higher write endurance. I've seen some of those little uh, boards that you can put in multiple compute models modules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they that call seems, them carrier yeah, boards. That seems pretty interesting because you basically have a small cluster in a box, which, again, is probably not as performant as a small AT- mini ATX x86 board Yeah, in the same box. It just kind of depends on, for me, my highest priority is power usage. Power usage is more important in my use case than performance, which is not how things used to be for me. So when I'm running off solar, I like I I can't even really tell you how much power my Raspberry Pi is drawn average because it's so little, it's hard to even pull it out of the whole mix. It's really nice that way. But if I turn on an X86 box, I can definitely see it in my stats. Yeah, it's like our needs define our wants or something. Something like that. Yeah. Those are some good boosts. Really good. Another boost from Cardinerd, Castomatic for the win. Any native Linux podcast 2.0. If you check out newpodcastapps.com, there are a couple of really pretty dang decent web podcast players. Never would have recommended these in the past, but one of them was just recently updated and it's slick. It's got the full value for value boost support in there. It's got chapter support. And of course, it syncs across your device. And another one that was just created is just sort of a browser extension. So it's like a podcast player in an extension. And uh, if you're at the desktop a lot, it's not bad. I got to say, it's not bad. And then we have a boost from Jupiter B for the introduction to decentralized exchanges episode. Thanks for the explanation. I feel like I've seen that before. I wonder if that's a repeat. Maybe, because we have gotten a boost from Jupiter B before. Yeah, we, we certainly have. Thanks, Jupiter B. And, oh, this is good. So I forget which episode this was, but it's Touching Hot Stoves. And True Grits writes in and says, hey, Chris. So you got a hey, Chris. Hey. There's one. Yeah. Chris was missing that acknowledgement. 
So thank you, True Grits. I tried to provide it myself, but it only came off as condescending, which was a big mistake. <laughs> I don't want your pity, hello. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no pity boosting here. Thank you. And our final boost is from Crypto Kyle, who writes in saying, Are we the Betamax of the crypto wars? Better tech, but worse marketing, causing us to eventually lose out. Ouch. So that was cross-input monetary death cult. Again, sorry for the title. Um, no. So a lot of times that is a very, very valid argument. And I think it's totally worth one considering. It's an idea I've kicked around in my head as well. But if you go back and look through technology platforms that have been significantly um, successful, often at the core of their success is they have the first mover advantage. And that first mover advantage has been very beneficial for Bitcoin's network effect. Additionally, the decentralized nature of Bitcoin and the fact that there's no one leader has also been significantly, I think, important to establishing Bitcoin as a differentiator from all the other coins. You know, every other currency has a founder. What happens, God forbid, but what happens if one day Vitalik wakes up and says, I'm moving to an island. I'm done. I'm never speaking to anyone again. I'm out of Ethereum. Do you think the price of Ethereum goes up or down that day? You went soft on that one. Yeah, I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. you know what I'm saying. I, I go darker when but, I do the Vitalik example. Well, let's be honest. That's what's likely to happen, right? Yeah. And who's the person that dies that brings the price down of Bitcoin? So many people. You'd take, you'd, yeah, it would take so many people. Yeah, yeah. To, there's to not one that. person. You know, Michael Saylor dies tomorrow. The price of Bitcoin goes up because now there's less Bitcoin on the market, right? It's, or Yeah, or maybe it tanks because the board is going to sell it or something. Sure, but sure. It doesn't kill Bitcoin is yeah. the point. There's not the centralization of leadership. And I think in Bitcoin, that's really important because we're not here to make friends. We're not here to play nice with an existing system. It's not possible to play nice with an existing system. Yeah. It's, it's time to disrupt. And if you're a company with a founder and partners or shareholders and you accidentally disrupt an important institution, you're at the very minimum going to get angry letters that cut off your banking and shut down your servers. And at the other end of that, you're going to get, you know, these shiny bracelets that uh, friendly people in blue uniforms or will God provide. God forbid something worse. I mean, these are serious people you're messing with. Um, yeah, there's that aspect of it. I think the other thing that is fantastic for Bitcoin is the point that you made earlier that is not just a joke. It is a real thing. And that is money flows to where it's treated the best and where it's the safest. Bitcoin is the hardest money ever known to man. There is not a harder asset, in my opinion, than Bitcoin. It's just not everybody's figured it out yet because for a lot of people, it looks very risky because they don't understand it. And so that kind of protection, hard money, the sort of store of value that Bitcoin's going to offer, that's untouchable by any other cryptocurrency because of the things we've just talked about, amongst other things, too, that we haven't even touched on. And so money flows to where it's going to be traded the best. And ultimately, over time, there's zero doubt in my mind that's Bitcoin compared to Ethereum or Solana or Luna, right? Or any of the other ones. I agree with you, Chris. And I'd also like to emphasize that I don't think we're in the first inning of this nine-inning game yet. I think we're still in the dugout and no one's gone onto the field yet, to use a sports analogy. Do you think the first inning begins when like a Bitcoin ETF in the U.S. is approved? Because we see one in Australia now. Is it? Do you think it's when the regulators have blessed it and all of a sudden Wall Street goes crazy with it? I mean, when does, how do we know when that first inning has begun? I don't know. I, I feel like it's a, I'll know it when I see it moment, but I sense it getting closer because we've already had this year, the US and European Union and Bank of Japan burn a central bank's 
FX reserves essentially freeze them and just let every participant in global financial markets know that the US dollar reserve currency era is over. So it seems like the institutions that will be most disrupted for Bitcoin are really eager to see if it works. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They seem to be buying at the, at the bit. Uh, the other thing that I've noticed is, and part of the reason why I started paying a much closer attention to Bitcoin again in the last year, is every major story in the world, on the world stage, has a Bitcoin angle right now. Uh, the pandemic and lockdowns and supply chain with inflation, the truckers in Canada, the war in Ukraine, like every major world event going on right now, there is a Bitcoin angle to it. And it's not just the Bitcoiners that are talking about it. It's the bankers. It's the Congress critters. It's the pundits on CNBC. It's it's becoming interwoven into just about every major thing that's happening now. And that, to me, feels like it's building towards something as well. If you look at all of these other altcoin projects, I'll admit, in the past, I've had FOMO because it's totally annoying when your friend is speculating on altcoins and bragging about all the money they've made. And it's tempting, right? We all we all want, you know, something out of nothing. We all want to, you know, be rich with very little effort and just get lucky. But the thing is, if I think of all of those projects that my friends have bragged to me about getting into, they're all gone now, every single one of them. I mean, those charts just went down to zero. And, you know, they, they didn't quite hit zero, but they nudged it. I mean, they're essentially just demonetized. So I've never actually seen a project challenge Bitcoin. You could say Ethereum, maybe. And I mean, I think that's a big maybe. It's, it's complicated. But, you know, the competition with the traditional financial system has not even happened. And most of the protocols have died under their own weight. So what happens when the traditional system really starts blowing up and causing problems and incentivizing people to try crypto, try Bitcoin, maybe even try Ethereum? I think that we'll discover then which systems are fragile. We'll discover then which systems can survive a little adversarial conflict with the existing powers that be. And I honestly do not have any confidence in any other system than Bitcoin being able to survive that. Frankly, even Monero, because it's a small community and it's, you know, I don't know, it, yeah. it seems small. You could see maybe some of them rebuilding over time. Something like Monero maybe building back over time. Right, because they have values at least that they can rally around. Yeah, they have a culture and a community that goes beyond just the dollar price of the coin. And I, what you just described is the same framework of thinking I used to tamp down my FOMO, which has been extreme, I have to admit, because I saw where Luna was going from the beginning, price-wise. Um, at $30, I said it's going to $100. At $60, I said it's going to $100. At $70, I said it's going to $100. And I watched it go all the way up to $100, I, like I knew. And I knew right at that moment I could have made money off of that. But that is a rabbit hole that you get sucked into. You know, one little win like that where you buy something, you sit on it for six months and then you sell it and you made a bunch of money on it or however much you put in. It's so addicting. And eventually you end up in a place where you get on the wrong side of a trade. And for my own peace of mind and my own sanity, I have to kind of have to tap the brakes a little bit on how sucked in I get into things. And the thing that I love about Bitcoin is that it's almost a guarantee as much as things are in life right now. That if I buy some today and I sit on it for three to five years, I'm going to make money. And that's all the work I have to do. I don't have to sit there and watch charts. I don't have to follow news. I don't have to get involved in community discussions. I don't have to speculate. I just buy Bitcoin and I sit on it for three to five years and I make money. Well, did you make money or did you not lose money? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's it may be getting more and more to the latter, to tell you the truth. Oof. But, I, you know, I didn't want to say anything on a downer. It is nice. You know, it is nice, though. 
in in terms of simplicity of investing, that's extremely appealing to me. And I also think this is one of the things that's going to appeal to the millennial generations and younger about Bitcoin is you don't have to do all this complicated stuff. It just almost functions like a savings account. You know, you convert your dirty fiat into the Bitcoin where it preserves its value or goes up over the long period. Right. Um, and uh, you're so so investing is as tricky as savings. And that's what I like about Bitcoin. Whereas with all coins, you're basically becoming a little micro day trader. Yeah, I think we uh, we've made our points clear. We are not altcoiners. We don't dabble in that stuff. And had we dabbled in that stuff, we probably got really burned in the process. Now, when we launched JB Coin, that's a different story. Oh, of totally different story. <laughs> I mean, this thing is like Bitcoin, but better. No rug pulls, guaranteed. Guaranteed. I say so, so you know it's guaranteed. <laughs> We've we've got all of these endorsements from high-profile people with no background in distributed systems or cryptography. <laughs> right. What could go wrong? Right. It's, good, it's great investment. Well, like, more details soon. <laughs> how is how's M&M's coin doing? <laughs> or uh, yeah. Well, didn't uh, Floyd Mayweather have a coin? And didn't he get like fined or something? <laughs> he was actually at Bitcoin 2021. He showed up and he was like, "Hey, I'm here and I'm promoting my." Something coin. Everyone's just booing him. And he was like, wait, what, what's going on? I'm Floyd Mayweather. Why are you booing me? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Celebrities are drawn into that. No doubt about it. I know. It. The celebrity angle is is bad. That's why you go to crypto.com and it's just so obnoxious. They got Matt Damon walking all over it. It's just so stupid. But, you know, it sucks. In a way, you know, that's what it takes, I suppose. Maybe I shouldn't hate it. You know what, Dad? Maybe I shouldn't hate it because it brings in more people and more people that start Investing, the, the the network effect takes off, price goes up for everybody, everybody benefits, and they've I hedged just, against inflation. I just feel like if you watch the Matt Damon ad, you're not going to buy Bitcoin. You're going to buy some terrible altcoin and hope it goes to the moon. Yeah, you're probably right. Because he says that fortune favors the bold. Right. I don't know. Bitcoin's looking a little expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Probably the boldest thing to do would to be buy a penny stock, right? That's right. You get a lot of that dog coin and then, you know, just spend a hundred bucks on dog coin and you get like 200 dog coins or whatever it is. I know. You're dog coin rich. You're, yeah. ri you're a rich dog. <laughs> okay. I think that's it. That's the show. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, April 22nd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with Chris. See you next time.